MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That's what he said. That's what I said. That's obviously what our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. This is episode seven in a nine-part series. We have one more episode after this, and then we'll have the author, Brian Kloss, back to answer patron questions. To become a patron, you can submit questions, and you'll get the ad-free feed of this show, Muller She Wrote, and The Daily Beans, you can do that by heading to patreon.com slash Muller She Wrote. And thanks to all of our supporters and listeners, and thanks to you, we can stay off Spotify. Hoo-hoo. Our next book club starts mid-March with the book Go Back to Where You Came From by Wajahat Ali. And now I spoke to him on The Beans about this book a few months back, and I'm really looking forward to diving into his book. So head to your favorite bookseller and grab your copy today. Now, on with Corruptible Parts 9 and 10. Part nine is a look into how power changes us physically, what it can do to our actual bodies, our physiology, and our neurochemical reactions, uh, even our aging and our genes. Now, how power changes your body is a series of studies that have some surprising outcomes, starting with macaques and cocaine. Now, I read about this study with somebody in particular in the back of my mind, not mentioned in the book, and I'm not saying he's addicted to cocaine or anything like that. Uh, this fellow was just on my mind. I bet you can guess who it is. It's Donald Trump Jr. Now, in this first experiment, a researcher named Dr. Nader used pure cocaine that he got from DEA drug seizures that had been refined by the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Now, after it's refined, it's 100% pure, and he has to have all sorts of security because of the street value of this cocaine. Now, Nader decided to test how hierarchy, rank, and status affect the experience of using drugs. Now, I want to open this discussion by saying the macaques in this study were not harmed, they were well taken care of, and I'm not here to opine on using animals in experiments. Uh, I'm here to report the study and the findings from the book to you, just an FYI there. So, uh, this researcher took 24 macaques and put them in individual pens to get them used to being in solitary, being alone. Then they pulled up partitions to create six groups of four monkeys each. And the hierarchies were established almost immediately. Once the social order was set, the, the researchers scanned the macaques' brains to measure the number of dopamine receptors. Now, there's two kinds of dopamine receptors, D1 and D2. When dopamine finds a D1 receptor, it gives us pleasure, thereby reinforcing whatever behavior preceded it. The D2 receptor does not reinforce behavior. So if you had only D1 receptors, you would get hooked on whatever behavior caused the dopamine to be released, like drugs. If you had only D2 receptors, the effect would be blunted. So whatever that behavior is, you wouldn't 
become addicted to it or you could quit the behavior cold turkey, no problem. Now, what they found from the brain scans is pretty incredible. You can actually change the proportion and number of dopamine receptors simply by creating hierarchies. When a monkey goes from solitary to a group and becomes dominant, if he's given cocaine, it's not reinforcing. So hypothetically, being a dominant monkey makes you less likely to get addicted to coke. Now, they tested this hypothesis by fitting each monkey with an IV drip and putting it in front of two levers. One lever gave them sweet banana pellets, and one gave them cocaine right into the bloodstream through the IV. Now, at high enough doses, all the monkeys chose cocaine. But at low to moderate doses, subordinate monkeys were much more likely to choose cocaine over food. Subordinate monkeys. Subordinate monkeys. Remember who's in the back of my mind. Makes me think of people I know to be chronic users of cocaine. Uh, or can assume. Now, again, Brian Kloss doesn't mention any names in reference to these findings about subordinate monkeys. So the less powerful monkeys would get hooked while the dominant monkeys chose food. Now get this. In a later experiment, Nader would take a monkey from one group of four and place him into another group. Now switching groups is stressful. They ran the cocaine banana experiment again, and the subordinate monkeys were even more susceptible to self-medicating with cocaine, while the dominant monkeys were more resilient and kept choosing food. Now after these experiments, they scanned the monkeys' brains, and sure enough... The number of D2 receptors, the ones that don't cause you to get hooked to behavior, those receptors increased in dominant monkeys. The chemical composition of their physical brains had been altered by power. These findings seem to point to a simple conclusion, that power is good for our bodies. It makes us more resilient. But is that true? Of course, the answer is not so simple. And that brings us to the question of stress and whether it physically impacts us or whether the ability to control our environment does. Now first, how do we know if power, status, and physical health are the cause of biological changes, or if it's just coincidence? The old correlation or causation question. Enter Professor Sir Michael Marmot of University College London, who has dedicated most of his life to answering that question. We have to acknowledge that when we study health, there are so many variables. Like if we look at a janitor and compare a janitor to a CEO. There could be huge differences in health outcomes. But is it the job? It could be education, nutrition, childhood experiences, you name it. So Marmot wanted to find out if being powerful would have worse health outcomes, but wanted to mitigate the impact of all of those other variables, sort of take them out of the equation. So he looked at about 10,000 British civil servants. Same job, pay grades, etc. They were in the same profession and often among people who started at the same rank. So we're closer to comparing apples to apples, right? Now, he discovered a crude but obvious relationship. The higher up the ladder you went, the lower your mortality. And those in the lowest strata had triple the mortality of those who ascended to the higher ranks. But is this because of power? Because one would think that the stress of more power would negatively impact your health. But as it turns out, there's a big gap between what we call stress and what actually stresses our bodies in harmful ways. The stress is actually a crucial tool to survival. Think of our fight-or-flight response and how that's changed over the, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. You know, the sympathetic nervous system kicks in, adrenaline and other hormones raise your heart rate, and if everything works out right, you have a better chance of survival when faced with a physical threat. That's from our Stone Age brains. But in the modern world, when we're not at watering holes and a saber-toothed tiger doesn't come up, our stresses are different. 
Take public speaking, for example. A lot of people don't like it. And if you don't like it, a stress response is normal. But if that kind of stress response is chronic rather than a short-term one-off emergency stress factor, it can become routine. Stress can become routine. Now, a lot of high-power jobs are intense, but not biologically stressful because we enjoy them. And we are able to shape the outcomes. We have more control. High-power jobs tend to have more control. But those with low-status positions and less control tend to realize that stress more physically. Same with some high-power jobs that don't have control either. So how does this manifest in the real world? We have to look again at our primate cousins for the answers. And this brings us to alpha males from baboons to boardrooms on page 172 in the hardback edition. And this is where we look at how power can age us. And this isn't really brought up, but it makes me think of how presidents age so quickly, uh, faster than the rest of us during their time in office. Now, researchers named Anderson, Tongue, and Johnston conducted studies of baboons in Kenya to find out whether power and status impacts the rate of aging. And to do this, they looked at rates of change within genes and how genetic aging related to social rank within a colony of baboons. And the findings show that while being alpha has its advantages in finding a mate or getting food, it comes with a high cost. It's like a live fast, die young type strategy. But there's also evidence that it sucks to be a low-ranking baboon. And then we have a study from four economists who looked at whether CEOs age faster when they're under more stress And do CEOs die faster when they're under stress? So how do you even test that? Well, back in the mid-1980s, states began to pass anti-takeover laws that made it way harder for a corporate raider to come and take over a company. So the economists looked at CEOs and their mortality rates and their health before those laws were enacted and then after. And as it turns out, the CEOs in charge after the laws went into effect lived longer than those in charge before the anti-takeover laws. Quote, Before you start reevaluating whether you really want that promotion, after all, there's some good news. Whether you're low status, a low status worker stressed by precariousness, or a high status CEO weathering the aftermath of a pandemic, or a drug kingpin just trying to stay alive, there are some ways you can protect yourself from the corrosive health effects of having too much or too little power. That protection is within everyone's grasp, unquote. And I love the next part. It's called, We Get By With A Little Help From Our Friends. And it starts on the bottom of page 177. In this next study, 159 men and 175 women were paid 800 bucks apiece to participate in a study. First, they filled out a questionnaire to find out their sociability rating, how extroverted or introverted they were. And questions like, how many people did you speak to that day? What social roles do you have? Are you a mother? Do you have a big family? Or, you know, are you a bo- like, what are your social roles, etc.? And once their sociability was determined, they were given the common cult, on purpose. And those with low sociability scores were three times more likely to develop cold symptoms than those with high sociability scores. Now, it's not exactly clear how social networks boost immunity, but in the macaque study previously mentioned, monkeys who moved from dominant to subordinate status had worse immune system functioning. And monkeys who moved from subordinate to dominant status got an immunity boost. So those of us facing stressors due to powerlessness, low status, lack of control, and all that, we can likely ward off the negative impact of stress by building better social relationships. And I'm quoting here, quote, if you want to be healthy, increase how much control you have over your life whenever possible, particularly if you're on the low end of the social ladder or at the very tippy top. And if you're going to go for that promotion, make sure it doesn't come at the expense of those you care about and love. So 
you can can I mean can we all we can all think of someone who is a subordinate with no familial love or friends that has a high power job with no control and a lot of stress. I can think of I can think of a few. But uh, anyway, that brings us to part ten: attracting the incorruptible. How do we make sure more good people seek power, get it, and stay good once in charge? And we'll dive into that right after this quick break. Stay with us. I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Everybody, welcome back. We're now on part 10, Attracting the Incorruptible, on page 181. And here, Brian Kloss lays out four lessons on how to attract the incorruptible. First up, recruit incorruptible people and screen out corruptible ones. Seems pretty simple. Class opens with some Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting done by Kyle Hopkins and ProPublica just a few years back. They've found that convicted repeat offenders were being hired as police officers with astonishing frequency in rural Alaska. And he found that every officer in a town called Stebbins, Alaska, every single officer had been convicted of domestic violence. Every single one. And the rot went all the way to the top because the police chief himself had been convicted of 17 crimes. Now, the problem was that there weren't any qualified applicants in town that wanted to be cops. And whenever a new cop was needed, they simply waived the requirement. They had a requirement that you can't be a convicted felon and you can't have a misdemeanor conviction in the last five years. They would just waive that. So what happened in Stebbins, Alaska, is an extreme example of what can happen when you don't have a big enough pool of applicants. And when you don't think carefully about recruitment. Think back to the New Zealand police recruitment video versus that other small town. So when it comes to recruitment, there's three main answers. First, you get a lot of applicants, a big applicant pool. Second, work to get the kind of people you want to apply. And third, devote sufficient resources to screening them. Kloss then asks us to think of someone in our lives that would make an awesome leader or congressperson. We all know a bunch of these folks, but most of them wouldn't go near a powerful position like that with a 10-foot pole. So the challenge we face is how do we get those people to seek power instead of the malignant narcissist who believes they deserve power, right? And when, now when organizations recruit, they tend to rely on past practices. That's a problem. Kloss refers to this as the QWERTY problem. You know, in the late 1860s, when they were inventing typewriters, they had a keyboard layout that made sense. But the trouble was, people typed so fast, the machines would jam. So they analyzed language and placed letters that occur next to each other, in, commonly in words, far away from each other on the keyboard. And voila, the QWERTY keyboard was born. But when the computer keyboard came out, and the problem of jamming was solved, we kept QWERTY. That's known as path dependency in social science circles. The path of least resistance is chosen, even if it leads to worse outcomes. Same with recruitment for leadership positions. When you rely on the same pool of people or the same methods, that's the QWERTY approach, and it's time to get rid of it. Also, better screening is essential. 
charming narcissists may present better than introverted awesome people. And better screening can help with that issue. Makes me think of when they doubled board the Border Patrol, but loosened the screening requirements. And look how that turned out. But better recruitment and screening alone won't fix all our problems. We have to ensure more incorruptible people throw their hats in the ring. So how do we achieve that? That's lesson two. Sortition and shadow governance for oversight. This is a cool concept. In 1906, a guy named Galtan attended a county fair, and one of the games was to guess the weight of an ox. After all the guesses were in, he analyzed them all and found that the statistical average of all 787 guesses was 1,197 pounds. Oddly, that's the exact weight of the ox. Now, that doesn't always work because groups of humans sometimes get things really wrong, but randomness can mitigate that. It can be useful because it neutralizes the outliers and the influence of people with an axe to grind, for example. Now, several thousand years ago, ancient Athenians believed that uh, it, the randomness had strengths, and they chose their democratic representatives by lottery. Using randomness to put people in power is called sortition. But putting people in power by random chance undermines democratic choice. But here's how it could work in politics. You could have a large annual citizen assembly. Think of it like a paid jury duty on steroids, Kloss says. The assembly would serve for a year, and elected officials would request quick advisory opinions from the citizen assembly. Of course, they'd be under no obligation to follow the recommendations of the citizen assembly, but if leaders departed from their recommendations, they'd really have to explain why. This kind of oversight has a lot of advantages. First, it solves the problem of corruptible people seeking power because they're randomly chosen. And much like jury duty, some of the citizen assembly would actually loathe being there. Second, when leaders act out of self-interest um, or, you know, corrupt reasons, it would be obvious because of the contrast with the advice of the assembly. And third, while politics often end in deadlock, normal people tend to bend toward compromise. So, better recruitment and oversight by sortition. Uh, but what about bad people that inevitably sneak through? How do we minimize the harm they could pose? That's lesson three, rotation. Now, Kloss gives many examples here, but one glaring one for me that is not mentioned in the book is the military. People assigned to leadership positions in the military are rarely there for more than two years. This is the impetus behind term limits, for example. Well, that and the fact that they're always campaigning and not governing. But rotation is also useful for an unexpected reason, called the Peter Principle, named after Lawrence J. Peter, who said people tend to rise to the level of their incompetence, meaning you know, you plateau after a while. And when you plateau and you're not climbing up the ladder, that will cause people to sometimes seek untoward ways of rising up further if given enough time. But rotation takes away that enough time. It works best when things, uh, when there are, it, it just, it kind of mitigates that whole, if you're there long enough and you've plateaued, you seek corrupt ways to get up higher up the ladder. Uh, but rotation works best when there are fewer bad apples recruited, to be fair. And Kloss says that these three lessons still aren't enough. Enter lesson four, auditing the decision-making process and not just decision-making results. As humans, we hang tight to the idea that there's a straight line between cause and effect when decisions are made. But that's not how it works, because real life is hugely complex. That's why we shouldn't focus on outcomes alone, but on decision-making processes as well. And there's three reasons that this is important. Kloss says, first... If you reward someone for a good outcome that was just due to luck and not skill, you could end up with costly failures from a corrupt, lucky person in the long run. Second, like, the, you know, the broken clock is right twice a day. Second, bad people are skilled at making you think they've done a good job. Sound familiar? 
And third, people sometimes look bad during snapshots of time, even though they're doing everything right. Scrutinizing the decision-making process can mitigate those pitfalls. History is replete with leaders who receive undeserved praise because of a good PR campaign. Klaus brings up the example of Benito Mussolini, the fascist monster, but one bit of acclaim sticks with him. Quote, he made the trains run on time. Only problem is, he didn't. Kind of like how Rudy became known as America's mayor after 9-11, which is an example, not in the book, just that's what comes to my mind. The problem is, no one investigates how a decision was reached when everything turns out well. Reminds me of only looking at the bullet-ridden planes that made it back from war missions instead of the ones that didn't, right? So these four lessons are a good start for putting better people into power, right? Recruit smarter, randomly select people to provide oversight, rotate people around more, and audit the decision-making process, not just outcomes. But we're only part of the way there, says Klaus, because no matter what we do, corruptible people can still become powerful. They can still sneak through the cracks. So we need to look at what we can do to prevent corruptibles from being tempted by the corrosive effects of their authority once there. And that's where we will pick up next week with the final three parts of the book. And then the following week, we'll be joined by the author, Brian Kloss, to answer your questions. Now, look for a new episode of Muller She Wrote out today with me and Pete Strzok. And of course, I'll be back tomorrow with Dana Goldberg on The Daily Beans for News with Swearing. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health, and vote blue over Q. I've been A.G., and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.